Today we are going to be again in Romans chapter 9. Um, I'm going to just start reading in verse 6, though we made it last time up to the end of verse 13. We're going we're gonna to spend some time today in those verses preceding verse 13 of chapter 9. Um, and then, um, time permitting, we'll start inching into um, verses 14, 15, and, and beyond. So, uh, let's begin reading in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. So, this is the point of all that we're looking at, all that Paul is trying to do in chapters 9, 10, and 11 as we consider um, this idea of election um, I want us to see that, that Paul brings it up and, and, and expounds on it so deeply because the thing that he wants to anchor within us as believers, having at this point in the book of Romans heard chapters 1 through 8 and the hope that's in it is that God cannot fail in the word that he's put forward to us. So, so that's what it says here in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. And then we talked about last week how he kind of begins unraveling this, this mystery for us. Um, and revealing how from the very beginning, um, not all that were descendants of Israel belonged to Israel. So uh, verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And we looked last week at the text where, where Paul uh, gets that quote from, verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and not done anything good or bad, in order that the purpose of election, in, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So here we see this narrowing down that God is doing. He's, he's calling out a people for himself. He has this, this purpose. And I want, us, I want us to consider this idea. I think this is important as we examine election. I think, think here in uh, verse 11, we find a, a phrase that's important for us to kind of pause for a minute and to consider. So here in verse 11, after, so he says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, and then he injects this thought in order that. So the, him, him making this statement before they had been born, before any works could be seen of them, is in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Right? So, election is not trivial. It is not unguided. It is not without purpose. Right? So, what is God's purpose in election? Right? I want us to think about that for a second. Why has God so ordered 
all of reality? Why has God in the midst of His creation then stepped in and amongst people who were um, in reality not very much different from the people around Him, around them at the time, selected for Himself all along the way these people? Right? What's the purpose of that? And, and kind of in just a, a short way of thinking about it, uh, I would say that the, the, the purpose of God in election is this. It's the glory of God in the exaltation of Christ. When we think about what is God doing in this work of election, what is it that we're getting a glimpse of when Paul starts speaking about this idea here in chapter 9 of the book of Romans, and that is this, that God is working for His glory, and His glory is most evident, is most clearly seen in the cross of Christ, in the resurrection, in the promises fulfilled, in the exaltation as Christ is now at the right hand of God. So the purpose of election, and we can get, like, when we think about this idea, when we think about election in general, there are a lot of areas where our minds will tend to go, where we'll want to focus, where we'll want to think, but the thing that I want us to, to be centered on, the thing that Paul is most concerned with, are not those things that are to the side of this main thing, Right? We'll see this as, as we progress through chapter 9 and we see that Paul anticipates thoughts related to what he's putting forward and he answers them in such a way not to take us off on the tangents, which is the... Like, how many of us, when we think about this, would say that we tend to think about the glory of God and the exaltation of Christ? How many of us, when, when I say election, does your heart say glory to God in the exaltation of His Son? How many? That's probably not where your mind goes first. Where does it go to first? God picking and choosing, right? God being unfair or, or the thought that He might be unfair, right? That is something sinful in us that causes that to be our first reaction. I, I want us to get that. that. That's the only way, that's the only conclusion that I can draw that would lead us to... So Paul laying out this hope goes here. There's lots of places that he could go. But after saying that nothing in all of creation can get between God and His people, he goes here. And he goes here for hope, not for division. He goes here for hope, not for inner turmoil between us. He goes here for hope, not for us to question the character of God, but for us to understand, to get a glimpse, to get a peek behind the curtain that God has been working His purpose of election throughout. And if it's not clear, if it's not clear in the book of Romans or in the New Testament, this work that God has done in the life, 
death, and resurrection of Christ. If you, if it misses, if you somehow miss the point that it's Christ glorified above all creation, and you first go towards all of these auxiliary things, May God's Spirit convict us that that's not where we go to first. Now, that's not me saying that. We ought not wrestle with or examine or probe deeper these things. We should have a fully fleshed out understanding, right? We should ask all the questions. But some questions are more important questions than others. And the primary thing that he is trying to get across to us in laying this out as he does, one, this hope, this unfailing hope in the God who makes promises, who cannot fail, will not fail in his promises, who has not failed, and two, that we would get a glimpse into this this work of election and God's purpose in it and how he has continued continued it up to uh, the time that, that Paul here is writing and um, as well we can conclude that he continues this work even even today. So I want us, now that we've kind of um, centered ourselves, right, and, and, and I hope that as we do this y'all see that I'm not like trying to center us on a thing that's not in the text here but that I'm drawing this from the text like when it says that God's purpose of election we ought to think God has purpose in election what might that purpose be and then as we examine scripture the Holy Spirit makes that clear to us so um, I want us to look at a couple of different places uh, in the Old Testament um, for these difficulties that we're going to come up against next right so Verse 12, um, or let's just continue from the God's purpose of, of, in order that, God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay, now that last, that last, quotation there is probably what pulls a lot of us right like that's probably the one that's probably the one that like we have the hardest time with or I, I should say like that's where our difficulties begin right because the difficulty that comes up when we read that is reiterated down farther in the text when we start getting into the hardening of of Pharaoh, right? So like the same thing that causes difficulty here causes difficulty when we get to this other text, right? And uh, the reality is, is what happens there is our brain says that seems unfair. Our heart says that seems unfair, right? So we're going to look, we're going to look back. Um, first, I want us to go to um, Genesis chapter 25, um, we're going to look here uh, at the at the quote that was made here. Genesis chapter twenty five, verse twenty three is where we're going to look. So this is the quote. Um, this is the first part of that. The older will serve the younger. So I want us to look at the reference that was made um, made there. 
Um, I want to point out a couple of things here that this is not directly dealing with um, these individuals' salvation. I think that's something that, that we should kind of look at here. Um, but this bigger work of election, um, it would be foolish of us to say that in no way does that affect individuals' salvation, right? This text is talking about the plan and working out of God in the selection of this this people with a purpose, right? So um, I want us to see that here, verse 23. And the Lord said, so this is Genesis chapter 25, verse 23. Um, So this is kind of uh, God speaking to her here. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. So what is God speaking about here first? He's not speaking primarily about the individual child, right? Now, how do you get a nation from a person? It takes that individual, right? Um, but here specifically in this work of election, there's, there's this, this, we're narrowing down to, a, to an individual, right? Um, God is working in all of this, narrowing down to an individual. Um, it, is, it is not, um, it is the, the individual here um, is not Jacob, right? The individual is Christ of which Jacob is a, a type foreshadowing him, but ultimately Christ is the completion of that, right? So this is that work of selecting um, these individuals. And, and Paul here is laying all of this out. So um, who, would know, who would know best um, th- this reality? It would not be the Gentiles who would be hearing this. It would be the Jews who were hearing this. And it would be the Jews who would probably, like, you would look and say, like, well, they missed the boat completely on this. And, and, and I'm sure many of the Jews would, like, mock Paul in this and say, oh, so God's been working this whole thing through his people, and then he, he left his people, right? And his people missed out on this. And Paul is here working to answer that question using this this argument that said that I would essentially, if I were in Paul's shoes, say, well, you didn't have a problem here, did you? You didn't have a problem when it was Jacob, did you? And that's essentially Paul's laying this out to kind of compound, not like that he's trying to build an argument from nothing, but he's saying your very history the word from which you read shows you this pattern is evident. That God is working, working, working down, narrowing, narrowing, narrowing down. So if you don't have an offense with Esau not being the favored one, then why are you offended now that it's, that it's come to that point of one? Right? That there is one man from which all knees will bow. Right? There's one way. Why now are you are you offended by it? So this is kind of part of laying out that argument here in, in uh, Genesis chapter 25. I should just finish reading this text. I started it a couple of times. <laughs> and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now, if you were to go back and you were to look at Jacob and Esau and you were to look at the lives of Jacob and Esau, you would not see this reality play out. It doesn't happen in their lives. 
right? This is a this is a bigger story of history that he's prophesying here, right? So it's a it's a bigger deal that he makes this kind of claim than just a claim to an individual. Because this shows the sovereignty of God throughout history. That he can make a claim about two individuals who will set forth in life on the paths that they go and at the same time the paths that God has set for them. And that this reality will in fact play out. And when it does, glory to God. Right? Because he is the one who can speak of the future truthfully before it ever occurs. The only one. Okay? So that's the first quote that we see there in um, that, that Paul draws from here in verse 12 of Romans chapter 9. Let's now look at the second quote. So and kind of showing this work, this narrowing down, this, uh, this funnel of all humanity, essentially funneling down um, throughout um, Old Testament history, uh, finding its narrowest point at, at Christ. Um, we see him make this reference in verse 13. Uh, he says, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay? Now, I want us to turn to... The book of Malachi. Uh, Malachi, we're going to look at chapter one, verse two. Um, so, if you if you will turn with me to Malachi chapter one, this is where Paul draws this reference from. Where are Jacob and Esau at the point in time that Malachi is written? dead (laughs) and what's happened in the time between the life of Jacob and Esau and now yeah so the Edomites come from Esau and we get Israel from Jacob right so we get two nations so God speaks before either are born that two nations will come from these men Is there a guarantee that nations come from an individual? No. No. Especially in the time that they lived, right? Giving birth was much more difficult then. The likelihood of death significantly higher for the mother and the child. Yet God claims that nations will rise from both of these. And he makes claims about the reality or the state of existence of these two before they before they the originators are even born right before they could have any works in life that you could point to and say this or that and now we find ourselves in Malachi this reality is played out over history there's there's only there's only one who has been alive from the time of that one to the other, that would be God. There's only one who's orchestrating all history that can speak this truth from before either were either either were born. Um, I want you to understand as well that the book of Malachi is not. Um, it would not, on face value, appear to be a love letter to Israel. Okay, um, but it is. 
Okay, that's like the reality is, is um, we find in Malachi chapter 1, just the opening up of this, I'm going to start in verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord. And then the one loved says what? How have you loved us? Like as I as I read as I read that, like that's one of those where it's like, is is God's love not evident? What does it say about an individual where God would say, "I've loved you," and 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 an individual would say, "How have you loved me, Lord? How 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 have you loved me?" Like that would be disrespectful from an individual. Yeah, what about a whole nation? Okay, so the people of Israel could not lay claim from their works or their actions or their response to God to being worthy of what God has done. And yet God says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Um, And I feel like God's answer... I feel like God's answer here is sometimes how I respond to my kids when they when they say things is just like that doesn't make any sense at all. And then it's like Dustin Dustin's response to it is like he calls it a Jesus juke. It's just like it's like that mic drop moment kind of thing. And God essentially God essentially does that here in in this response. He says, "I've loved you," says the Lord, but you say, "How have you loved us?" And his response, is not Esau Jacob's brother? He's like, look at him. Look at you. Look, what differentiates the two of you? Is it that you're better than them? Clearly not, because you ask, how have I loved you? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau... I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Okay? So if you were to go back historically and you were to look at the Edomites and you were to see the ebbs and flows in that society, you would, you would see a host of things that occurred. Over and above all of those, what is God saying? Who was in control of that? He was in control of that. Now, now we're at the level of nations here when we consider this, but nations are made up of individuals, okay? So for him to say that he laid waste to his hill country, as the Lord laid waste there were people living lives there, right? Whether we talk about it on the individual or whether we talk about it in the group sense, there is no avoiding the difficulties that come with this text. God is in control of history. It should be a comfort to us 
to know that God is good, kind, holy, generous, merciful. I feel like when we read texts like this, we will, we will quickly forget about that and we'll, we'll focus on him having laid waste to a nation. Yeah. 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 So if you were to keep going through, like, it gets, yeah, it gets rough before it gets better, right? Now, one interesting thing um, to note is if you look down in verse eleven, you God is God does not leave any people in any time without witness. Um, it may be, it's like, I believe without a doubt that we live, like, I am m- more grateful than words that I live in the time that I live, where the full revelation of the work of God is here. And the promise that I hope for is that He will bring me back from the dead, right? That I, like, the fortune that I have finding myself here versus that, that your seed will crush the head of the serpent. Like, that was a promise. And I, if you believed in that, like, you believe in the one who makes promises is faithful to fulfill his promises. But how much easier is it for me to believe now? Seeing this great work that he's orchestrated. But even here, he says, he gives us a glimpse in verse 11 for this work that he's doing. From the rising of the sun to the setting to its setting my name will be great among the nations so what is god's aim what does it mean when he says that my name will be great that he's seeking glory for himself among all nations so from the sun, from the rising of the sun to the setting to its setting my name will be great among the nations, and in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So we find in this promise that his name will be made great and that there will be worship there. Okay, so... God could work in such a way to make His name great by crushing all. Tyrants on earth, we can see them trying to do this. Right? Yet God, in this glimpse of this promise, lets us see that when his name is made great, part of that, there's, there's a worship element there, right? That in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. Like, there's a, there's a hope here, right? We see these difficulties. We see that, um, is it, it, when we go back up to Malachi Chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. And I read this. I've loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have, I lo- how have you loved us? Right? And he's speaking to Israel here. He says, it's not Jacob's, it's not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet, 
I have loved Jacob, but Esau have I hated. And you ask yourself, what does he mean when he says hated here? What does he mean? Go look at the word, and this is, this is not an easy thing. Go look at the word. I would love it if the word meant something other than the way that I use it when I use it. I would, I would love to be able to find a way that I could say to you that he meant something else. But if you look at that word and you go and look where it's used in Scripture, it's used like hate. I wish that it wasn't. Right? When I, when I, because why do I wish that it wasn't? Because it would, if I could say that it was something else, then there wouldn't be as much of that tension in me as there is. But he, he, he clarifies himself here. I've laid waste to his heels or to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. So like when he says hate, it, maybe he doesn't mean it like we say we mean it. But he sure enforces it like we wish that we could enforce it. Right? When you think about hatred towards an individual, like hatred often comes with what? This desire for the outpouring of your wrath. Right? What do we find here? That's, that seems like the work of God's wrath when I read this. Okay? Um, that's, it, it seems unavoidable that there's a nation laid waste and that though the secondary means may have come by the hands of other nations or by individuals um, that God would seem to, to take responsibility for that. And he, he does so not in an arbitrary way but he uses that reality to make something known to the ones he loved. Okay? Like the purpose, and, and we're going to see this playing out as well as we go on into um, Romans chapter 9, and, and it'll probably be next week before we um, are able to kind of really continue that train of thought. But what I want us to see really quickly, if you will flip back um, to chapter 9 of the book of Romans and, and look at verse 14 here. So, um, whatever conclusion it is that we're supposed to draw from these quotations, right? Um, however we choose to wrestle with them and, and to understand them, right? Because um, historically there have been two approaches to this. Whatever approach that you side with or, or lean into, um, if in your digging out of the details, you, you don't find yourself needing to ask the question that Paul answers in 14 or starts to answer in 14, then you, you're not on the same train of thought as, as Paul is here. Okay, So as Paul's laying these things out, he's anticipating responses. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start in 11 and read 11 uh, 
to 14, just so that we can kind of keep this train of thought. So, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who, call, him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there on injustice on God's part? So, is it unnatural for our minds as we explore these realities and as they start to click in our mind? Like, is it an unnatural path for us to question the character of God here? Is that the unnatural path? It's not the unnatural path. Okay? And the reason that it's not the unnatural path is as Paul is laying out this argument, he says, now's a good time to address this, right? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Now, this working of God's purpose and election, the hope that he's trying to anchor us in as believers, is more important than the rabbit trail of God's justice, okay? Like, it's not that we shouldn't work out in our minds how this can be true and yet God is still just. That's not, we shouldn't, like, look at what Paul says here as like, that's a stupid question, okay? Why are you, you know, that, that's not what he anticipates here, but he answers it quickly because that's not the, that's not the thing that he's trying to tell us, right? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Now, if you've read through the book of Romans, you know that Paul is, um, he can be long and drawn out to say the least. But this is not one of those places. By no means. Is God unjust? Is God unjust? We, we ought not need more words than this. By no means. Right? Now, Paul's laying this argument out. He gets here. He understands that we'll think that. But there's more important things for us to discuss. Right? There's more important things that will anchor us in this hope that God is a God who doesn't fail in His Word, which is what he's trying to do. Verse 6 of chapter 9. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. That's the purpose that he's trying to push forward into here. He understands that as he's laying out this truth that questions will arise. Some of them he gives more digging into. Some of them he fleshes out a bit more. Some of them he's like, by no means. Like, you know better. You know better. God's not in, like, the, he is just in the justifier. Go back and read the earlier chapters of Romans. By no means is he unjust. And then he kind of pushes on and he pushes on into um, verse 15. We'll, we're going to stop. We'll come back and start on um, verse 15 next week. Next week, we will dig into two things. One, that I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. And then we'll look at um, the hardening um, of, of Pharaoh. And we'll spend quite a bit of time in the hardening of Pharaoh. I'm going to read the text that we'll look into um, and then we'll close just so that um, it'll, I'll have it out on the, 
on the podcast. You could just listen to the end if you wanted to read ahead. So Exodus chapter 3 verse 19 speaks of hardening. Exodus 4.21. Exodus 7.3. 7.13-14. Exodus chapter 8 verse 15. Exodus chapter 8 verse 19. Exodus chapter 8 verse 32. Exodus chapter 9 verse 7. Exodus chapter 9 verse 12, Exodus chapter 9, verse 34 and 35, Exodus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, Exodus chapter 10, verse 20, Exodus chapter 10, verse 27, Exodus chapter 11, verse 10, Exodus chapter 14, verses 4, verses verse 8, verses 17 through 18. All of these speak to the hardening of Pharaoh, and we will spend a good bit of time looking at this and, and examining this um, because Paul, bring, Paul brings it up here in chapter 9 for, for a reason and um, I, think it's, I think it's important for us to, to dig into that. Um, we'll do that next week though.